The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight we're, uh, we're looking at the topic of means of grace within uh, the church. And the questions in front of us are, what are the different activities within the life of the church that God uses to bring blessing to us? And what do we do if we neglect involvement in a local church? So this idea of means of grace is uh, a powerful one. And I want to begin by one of my favorite scenes from Pilgrim's Progress. And that's the picture on the cover there um, of Christian still with his burden on him. And he's there with interpreter. Interpreter brings him to various little scenes and vignettes in his house that teach him things that are needful for the Christian life. And this is one of the most poignant ones of all. And I'll go ahead and just read from Pilgrim's Progress. And I think it'll get us uh, quickly into a discussion on the issue of the means of grace. Then I saw in my dream that the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a place where was a fire burning against a wall and one standing by it, always casting much water upon it to quench it, yet did the fire burn higher and hotter. Then said Christian, what means this? The interpreter answered, the fire is the work of grace that is wrought in the heart, and he that casts water upon it to extinguish and put it out is the devil. But in that thou seest the fire notwithstanding burn higher and hotter, thou shalt also see the reason of that. So he had him about to the backside of the wall where he saw a man with a vessel of oil in his hand, of the which he did also continually cast, but secretly into the fire. Then said Christian, what means this? The interpreter answered, this is Christ, who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart, by the means of which notwithstanding what the devil can do, the souls of his people prove gracious still. And in that thou sawest that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire, that is to teach thee that it is hard for the tempted to see how this work of grace is maintained in the soul. So what do you get out of that? I just love that uh, picture. But what does that picture teach you? Here's a wall. Here's a fire burning. Here's a guy with a bucket of water trying to put the fire out, but he just can't seem to do it. And uh, Christian doesn't know why until he's taken around behind the wall. And there's Christ feeding oil into the bottom of the fire to keep it going. What does this teach you about the Christian life? God is always there. Okay. Time of temptation. He's always there. God's always there working. Okay. We have grace there even though we can't see it. Okay. Plenty of grace. All right. I forget the specific scripture. I think the Apostle Paul was talking about but uh, where sin is, grace abounds, or something like that. Right, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. It's in um, Romans 5.21. Interesting, yeah. on the side of temptation, you don't see what it is that's keeping the fire from going out. It's hidden from us. We can't see it, and sometimes we think we might stumble and fall and not be recovered because the trials are so great. But there is that grace coming. What else do you learn? Satan can't win. <laughs> Poor Satan. Are you all feeling sad for Satan? I like the notwithstanding all that the devil can do. You know, fire burns higher and hotter still, you know, that kind of thing. Satan just can't, can't win. And why not? Why not? To me, one of the central lessons of this, of this depiction here is the ongoing nature of the battle. We'll see. 
Satan keeps, keeps pouring water on the fire. And Christ keeps feeding oil into the, into the grace, uh, oil of grace into the fire to keep it going. So what I get out of that is if Christ stopped feeding the oil in, I think the fire would go out. And what I get out of that is that we need Christ to feed us grace all the time. We need a constant infusion of grace or the fire will go out. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ withdrew his gracious influences from you that you'd survive the satanic onslaught? Do you think not? Well, that's good. I'm glad. All right. I think you would not. I think you would lose. You know, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You know, that's Christ and he is feeding grace into us, feeding it so that the fire doesn't go out. This is somewhat of a new insight for me over the last, say, five to ten years. You could sum it up in the name of that Christian hymn, I need thee every hour, that kind of thing. There's a sense of a constant neediness that we have for grace. And it's different from that sense that we get of by grace are you saved through faith and that and out of yourselves is a gift of God, not by works. That can be kind of somewhat static and initiatory. You know, right at the beginning of the Christian life, you needed grace. Well, I remember back when I needed grace, you know, that kind of thing. Amazing grace. And we think that that's that initiating grace that brings us first to faith in Christ. And while not denigrating that grace is involved there, what I'm saying is that that's, that's not the end of it. We actually need sustaining grace all along. We need Christ to keep feeding the oil into the bottom of the fire to keep it going. And so there's this sense of a need for Christ at every moment, a need for grace at every moment. And so for me, as somebody who's reformed in his theology, I believe in the absolute certainty of salvation. I had to kind of mesh that then with this insight. And what I get is that I need an ongoing infusion of grace and I will definitely get it. That's what, that's what I get out of it. It's not that I don't need it. It's not that. It's, it's that it's a dynamic assurance that we have here. We have assurance now, today, that we will not fall away, that we will not give up, that we will not cave in before the satanic onslaught. And we have grace today, sufficient for today. And we're going to get more grace tomorrow. And we're going to get more grace a year from now if we're still alive. And we'll keep on getting grace until the day we die. John Piper wrote a whole book about this called Future Grace and that we need to live by faith and confidence that God will give us that grace. And that actually gives you strength to fight sin right now because one of the things the devil tells you is, ah, sooner or later you're going to give in. Sooner or later you're going to lose. So might as well give up now. Have you ever heard that or felt the weight of that, that sense? You just want to give up. You know, you're never going to make any changes. You are who you are. That's pretty much set from your childhood and there's nothing you can do about it. That's Satan talking. And instead, we should have great confidence that grace will be there at every moment. And then you're going to attempt great things for, for God and expect great things from God in terms of sanctification and admissions too. So here is this picture from Pilgrim's Progress and that brings us very neatly into the topic, I think, of the means of grace. What is the pipeline of grace into the bottom of your Christian life? You know, remember how Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Isn't that powerful? That's that infusion. The, the faith is the fire for me. Uh, Bunyan calls it the work of grace, but I could equally call it faith. 
We, we have faith in Christ and it's an ongoing thing and it needs fuel. And so what is the pipeline of fuel? Well, that's the topic that we're studying tonight, the means of grace. How does he get grace into you so that the fire doesn't go out? But uh, I think just the concept is enough right here at the start. I, we'll delineate those means of grace and talk about four of them tonight. But uh, just the idea, I need grace, I need it, is important. All right? Because it's going to argue that you better keep coming to church. <laughs> you see? You need to keep coming to church. You need to keep standing in the shower of grace. You need to keep being where grace is being dispensed. You need to come where it's, where it's flowing in order to get what you need for your soul. Do you see that? I think that's where we start. So the basic concept is on page two, we need to uh, continue. We continue to need grace to finish our salvation. Salvation is a process, a journey that will not be finished until we are in our resurrection bodies. And we must uh, be constantly covered in grace and all salvation is of grace. Uh, Sanctification, which is going on right now in your hearts and mind, requires fresh supplies of God's grace at every moment. So when I was doing that whole sanctification work that I'm working on now in terms of the book that I'm writing, um, there was this chart, this grace chart. Do you see it? And so it's just the purpose of the chart is to give you a sense of the ongoing work of grace, that grace is covering all of salvation. And there are different kinds of grace. I believe in predestination. I believe it's biblical and therefore... The first time we received God's grace was before the foundation of the world, when he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So that's choosing grace at infinity past, whenever that was. You see that in the lower left-hand corner. And then um, from birth until conversion, I I, I take all of that period as converting grace. Because everything's part of it, isn't it? All of the experiences you have and all of the... The, the, the scripture you might have learned and, and the times that people witnessed to you seemingly to no avail and, and all of those things, things that maybe your parents did or, or whatever experiences you had, good and bad, I think all of that's part of it. God uses it all uh, until you're converted. And so that's converting grace, the work of God in your soul to convert you. And then uh, for, for the rest of the time, you see how you're making progress in the Christian life. You have your good days and you have your bad days, you have your ups, and you have your downs. Sometimes you have more downs than ups. But uh, you're generally making progress, going up in Christ-likeness, becoming more like Jesus. The area above the curve there is the way that you're not like Jesus. Do you see that? It's the way you're not like Jesus. That's called sin, I don't mean to be harsh, but the ways that we're not like Jesus and the ways that we're not doing what we should be doing or thinking or feeling what we should think and feel uh, is sin. It's imperfection. And what do we need for that? Well, we need grace, don't we? What I would call covering grace. You need to be covered at every moment. We need to be under the blood of Christ at every moment for those discrepancies between us and what Christ would have said or done at any moment. There's lots of sins of commission, aren't there? But then there's all those sins of omission, things you should have been doing and you weren't. And so just need that covering. But we're also making progress. We're becoming more like Christ. We're doing some things that please him. He is well pleased with them. We do those acts by faith. We are making progress. So that would be what I could call conquering grace, those ways that we overcome the flesh, the world of flesh and the devil, and we actually do the things God wants us to do. 
Praise be to God. Hallelujah. We actually did what God wanted us to do in a certain situation. That's by grace too, isn't it? You know, like we'll talk about in a minute, but Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. And so God's grace working in Paul enabled him to overcome himself and to overcome the satanic obstacles and to be very fruitful for God. That's conquering grace. And then when you die, you get completing grace. He will cover the rest of you. He'll cover your soul and make you instantly like Jesus, conform to him in every way. And then at the, at the right time in the future, he will give you your resurrection body and the, and the dead in Christ will be raised up and, and we will get our bodies so it will be conformed to his resurrection body and forever we'll be in that and we'll be completed. We'll be perfect. Body, soul, and spirit. Isn't that beautiful? Covered by grace. Yes. Can you contrast grace and mercy? You know, I, I think it's very difficult to distinguish between those two. I wouldn't call them exact synonyms. Some have, have uh, put grace in terms of rich blessings given to those who deserve curses, blessings given to those who deserve curses. Mercy tends to be more um, God mitigating the miserable effects of sin. You know, some people have, have looked at it that way, that sin brings about misery and pain and suffering and God's mercy is to step into that and, and alleviate it somewhat. Like a blind person, be merciful to me, son of David, this kind of thing. And there's a mercy, a mitigating of that so that they, they, their sight is restored. I think that's okay. You know, you could really see all of mercy as a subset of grace because it's a blessing that comes from God. So it's the best I can do with that. They're really very similar. Good question. All right, so grace. And, and all I'm getting at here is you need it all the time. You need grace right now. And as a matter of fact, I think we're all receiving grace right now. We're talking about the things of God. We're studying the word of God. God is, is feeding oil into our souls and he's keeping that fire burning inside us, no matter what our role is here, both as much for me as the teacher as all of us for learning. Now, we need this ongoing grace and there's a lot of ways that the New Testament makes this clear. Look at page three. I really think this is powerful. I'm not going to go through each of these, you know, but I just I wanted to be comprehensive. And I think it's striking that the Apostle Paul wrote 13 epistles, as far as we know, depending on your view of the book of Hebrews, which I think probably he didn't write. But uh, either way, uh, he wrote 13 epistles we definitely ascribe to him. And in every single one, he begins and ends the epistle with grace to you. It's really quite striking. Again and again, Romans 1, 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the end, Romans 16, 20, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Again and again, Romans 1, 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the end of the book, 16, 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. It's almost like you could look at, at an epistle from the Apostle Paul, like a big, beautiful room filled with all kinds of supplies and food, you know, provisions and weapons for your battle and, and whatever you need. And, and the sign over the, the entranceway is grace to you. And the sign over the exit as you leave the epistle, so to speak, and go out into your life fully equipped is grace to you. The, the, the epistle itself is, is grace. And you're getting all of this grace. And then you go out from it and go do what God wants you to do. You know, the good works he has in mind for you to do. And it's grace. So there's grace at the beginning and then there's grace at the end. And so I think that's so beautiful. Second uh, Corinthians, grace and peace to you. And Second uh, Corinthians 1, 2. And then uh, 13, 14 says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So you can look over that. But I, I put it all out there for you just to show you how comprehensive it is. There's not a single exception. 
And so therefore, I really look on, and we'll talk about this, but the word of God itself is grace, isn't it? So when you step into one of Paul's epistles, boy, is God being gracious to you. Boy, is he being gracious. Is he not pouring grace into your soul by means of the things Paul wrote? I think that's what he's getting at. So there it is. There's the complete list on page three and four, uh, right to the end. 13 letters from Paul, and not once does he deviate from this pattern. It's also clear in the theology of the New Testament. All right? We are, in an ongoing sense, depending on grace. We need grace to keep flowing into our hearts, or we perish. Romans 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this, and there it is, grace in which we now stand. Grace in which we now stand. We are standing in grace. You could talk about it this way, that that's our standing. We're in a standing of grace before God. When he sees us, he sees us in grace. I also think it's helpful to look on it like a hot cleansing shower, right? And with all the filth that comes out of our pores through our sin and the body of sin and all that, we just need to be cleansed. And we are cleansed all the time. There's an ongoing cleansing of grace that happens as he purifies us moment by moment. You know, it says uh, in uh, 1 John 1, 5, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship uh, with one another and the blood of Jesus purifies us from every sin. Isn't that beautiful? So there almost you could use um, John's language of light equals grace. You can almost say that, although I'm not making that statement, but just to combine Romans 5, 2 with 1 John 1, 5, we are standing in grace in, first, in Romans 5, 2. We are walking in the light. And in both cases, there's this purification, the blood of Jesus cleansing us from every sin. And that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Uh, we are just so thoroughly and completely loved and thoroughly and completely cleansed. Even though we still need to confess our sins, 1 John 1, 8 and 9, we need to confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But we've got that ongoing need for grace. Also, Romans 6, 14 says a similar thing, for sin shall not be your master because you're not under law, but under grace. Grace is our leader. Grace is our authority figure. Grace is our king. Grace reigns through righteousness, it says. So grace is in charge of us. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, what a dreadful, dreadful tyrant and taskmaster sin was. And But we're not under sin anymore. We're done with him. <laughs> we're now under grace. And grace is our leader, our king. So uh, there's ongoing leadership of grace. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, I already quoted. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Let me, let me tell you something. Grace from God is never without effect. Ever. <laughs> we believe in effectual grace. It makes an effect. You know, the word of God doesn't return back to him void, but it accomplishes that for which he sent it forth. It's almost pretty ludicrous to think of God sending forth a word to accomplish something and it comes back empty. It didn't work. (laughs) You got to try something else, God, said the word back to God. Because I didn't work. Try something else. It's just impossible. God says, let there be and there is. That's just the way it is. And so he sends forth his grace and it has an effect on us. His grace to me was not without effect. And what was the effect of the grace of God on the Apostle Paul's life? Go ahead and look right there. 1 Corinthians 15. What what was the effect of grace on Paul? He worked hard. And therefore, we have that marriage of God's grace and our strong effort. 
effort in sanctification, effort in evangelism and missions. We make efforts. We're not kicking back, sitting back, relying on the sovereignty of God to get it all done for us. The effect of grace in Paul's life was to get him moving, to get him vigilant and, and, and making progress in those two infinite journeys of sanctification and worldwide mission and evangelism. So grace gets you moving. Grace is energetic and powerful. That's it. No, I worked harder than all of them. All of who? All the others. <laughs> Say, what an arrogant guy Paul was. I don't, I don't know how to account for it. All I'm saying is that's what he wrote. He's not being arrogant. He's just saying that he worked harder than all of them. And I think it's probably true. You know? No, it's definitely true. It's in the Bible. So there it is. He worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, says Paul, but the grace of God that was in me. It was God that just moved me powerfully to do this work. So that's the grace of God moving you. James 4, 6 says, but he gives us more grace. So we don't just need the amount of grace we already have. We need more grace. How do you know you need more grace? Because you're still alive. (laughs) And you need grace every hour. And so you need more grace. And he gives it to us. He gives us more grace. And that is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's very important. It's quoted twice in the New Testament. It's in 1 Peter as well. And so what it is is that you better be humble and come to God and ask him for grace. God, give me grace. Give me that completing grace, that, that covering grace, that conquering grace. Work in me. Work in me what needs to be worked. And so just be, be humble and come and ask him for grace. Uh, and again, 2 Peter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. By the way, Peter also begins and ends his epistles with grace to you. And so there you go. Um, grow in grace. We're going to need this ongoing infusion of grace. Every good and perfect gift comes only by grace. Uh, James 1.17, turn the page if you would. Now, let's uh, get to the topic directly at hand, means of grace. What are the pipelines of grace whereby God gets that grace into your heart, into your soul? Grudem says the means of grace are any activities within the fellowship of the church that God uses to give more grace to Christians. So anything that's going on in the church that gives him gra- gives grace to Christians, okay? That's what we use by means of grace. And you say, well, is it just in the church that we're... Well, that's what we talk about when we're talking about the topic of means of grace. All right, it's generally connected to the ministry of the church. That's what it is. It's not that God can't give you grace through your private quiet time. I'm not saying that. He's not saying that. But we're just saying, what does the church do to make itself available to be means or instrument of grace in other people's lives? That's what we're talking about here. All right. Now, what are the means of grace? Well, traditionally, Protestant theologians have spoken of only three. The preaching of the word, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. Those three. All right. And uh, that's where you, uh, you know, have the definition of a true church. A true church is, is the one that handles those means of grace properly. Right. The, the proper faithful teaching of the word of God and the proper administration of the ordinances or, uh, you know, the, what others have called the sacraments. All right. Charles Hodge, though, added um, prayer as a fourth means of grace. And that kind of opened a can of worms. People started saying, well, are there more means of grace than just those three or maybe four? And Wayne Grudem is going to say yes. You know, Scripture actually speaks of the manifold grace of God. The word manifold, I know it's a part of a car. Does anybody know what a manifold is in a car? What's a manifold? Any car experts here? I've seen that before. What is it? Tim, do you know what that is? A manifold? Huh? The exhaust off of the engine. What does it look like? It looks like a hand grab into the cylinder that sucks the exhaust out. But okay. there's also an intake manifold. So it's, it's kind of... All right, all right, 
I'm sorry I asked. But anyway, you know, I get going here. In the, well, I tell you, the, the word manifold here means variegated, like lots of different pipes going in, I guess you could almost uh, sense that. And that's what the Greek word means here. There's a sense of, of there's, there's like a kaleidoscope of grace is what it is. There's a, a very a marvelously varied nature of grace is what we're talking about here. So that seems like with that word poikilos, which is the Greek word, that word variegated grace, we've got to have more than just three means of grace. There's got to be like lots of them, right? Just lots of ways that God gets grace into your soul. And I'm not saying that these 11 are the only ones there are, but I think they're, they're worth, worth talking about. But here's 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, which I think really cinches, us, cinches, cinches it for us. And that is each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. So they, that word various, that's that word I was just mentioning a moment ago. That's that manifold grace or various nature of grace. And we have received gifts and we are stewards of those gifts. And we are to be faithful as stewards of God's variegated forms of grace. And so therefore each of us kind of it's almost like you're, you're standing over a pipeline of grace and you've got the, the, the gate valve and you can open it or shut it. And he's just saying, open it wide. You know, open it and let the grace flow because it's not for you anyway. I mean, it's for you in part that you get the joy of being the gatekeeper, but it really that grace that was meant to be flowing through you to others is meant for them. You know, each, each gift belongs to all the others. And so there's, we're a body and so we are meant to bring grace into the body of Christ. And so let it, let it flow, open up that gate and let the grace flow. So be faithful. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And so that's a, a very simplistic twofold categorization of spiritual gifts. There are speaking gifts and serving gifts. If you speak, then you should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If you serve, you should do it with the strength God provides. It also gives us a sense of the, of the purpose of these spiritual gifts so that God may get the glory, that he might be praised and honored. I mean, that's what he's doing in the end. That's what we got out of John chapter four, isn't it? Isn't he looking for true spiritual worship? Anyone who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so that's the goal. That's what he says, that we would all worship God in spirit and truth. That's what he's doing, is, is assembling a whole body of worshipers. And so therefore, spiritual gifts. That's what I get out of that. So do those gifts to the glory and praise of God with his strength and be a faithful steward of them. Well, anyway, all I'm zeroing in is this idea of variegated or manifold grace. ESV gives us that, 1 Peter 4.10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So there's lots of ways that God gets grace into the soul. That's all I'm saying right here. It is wise to stretch our understanding of the various means of grace that God uses to bring us to our full salvation in Christ. Now, Grudem gives us this list of 11. The teaching of the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer for one another, worship, church discipline, giving, spiritual gifts, fellowship, evangelism, and personal ministry to individuals. All right, so why don't we look at some of them, maybe the first four. Um, I want to make some brief initial comments, though, about these um, means of grace. First of all, all of these are available to believers within the church. That's where you're going to find them. So what does that tell you? What do you get out of that? What's a practical application? 
come to church. There you go. What do you think? We need to be here. Need to be here. Need to be here. And for me as a pastor, that means that I really need to look out for those that aren't here. The ones that aren't here are a concern. And you should care about them too if they're not here. That's important to note when people aren't here. We should notice that. We should do a better job in 2007 than we've ever done before. We should notice when people aren't here. I mean, because they're not here for some bad reason. It doesn't mean they've done anything wrong. It could be that they're not here. And I don't mean not here because they're on a business trip or, or away on vacation, but I mean not here, consistently not here. That's what I'm talking about. It's either that they're physically unable to be here or that spiritually something's going on in their lives. Either way, the church has a role, doesn't it? The church has a, has a role to play. If they're, if they're incapacitated or homebound, shut in in some way, the church has a role. And uh, if there's sin in, in their lives and that's what's keeping them from coming, then the church has a role. Either way, we need to notice. So, and that's primarily our responsibility as ministers to be shepherds of the flock, but uh, it's also the min- uh, ministry or concern of the whole church. You know, we need to be here. It is not a small thing to miss church. It really isn't. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. All right. You know, I, I remember uh, a few weeks ago I had, um, I had a Sunday off, and I like to go to other churches around here if I can, because I want to see what they're doing. And so I went to a church, and, and uh, I, we didn't go to Sunday school. We just went and, and then came back, and I thought, wow, what an easy, easy morning. It was just comfortable. I didn't have to preach or teach or anything. I was just in and out. And then I started saying, yeah, I could get used to that. You know, it was kind of almost like narcotic or something. You know, it was just drawing me, you know. And, and then I thought, you know, I, I think that probably is what happens to people that skip church. You know, they, it's like, wow, this is, you know, it was an easy, comfortable day. And we didn't have to get everybody ready, and we didn't have to face the world of flesh and the devil. We could just stay home and, and you know, and deal with that. And, and that was nice. And, and I think it happens. And pretty soon, you, you know, one action or a couple of actions, and it's a habit. And people adjust. And I've heard people tell me that's what happened. That's precisely what happened. So I'm just saying, please don't let it happen to you. Please don't let it happen to you. Watch over your soul. Watch over your soul in this matter of church attendance and being here. Just, And that's good for the rest of your life, not just if you're involved here at First Baptist, not just because I want to see you, which I do. I mean, I love you, and you give me um, you know, benefits just by who you are. Each of you are unique individuals with unique gifts, and you, only you can do what you can do. But it's not just that. It's because you need it as well. And so you're, if you were living in a whole other state, truth would still be there. You need to be committed to a local church and you need to attend regularly. So that's what I get out of it, first, first of all. Also, the Holy Spirit works through these means of grace. These aren't just mechanistic things. These are things the Spirit or the Spirit of Christ is doing. These are living things. I, really, another good analogy here, uh, even better, uh, Bunyan would say it's better, better than the man feeding oil into the bottom of the fire and all that, is I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Isn't that means of grace? Jesus is the vine and we have to stay stuck to him in order to get from him what we need. I think that's another good way to look at it. I am the vine, you are the branches. So it comes to us by grace through Christ. Now, the Roman Catholic Church had a different list of means of grace um, and they were called the sacraments the sacraments, and they listed seven sacraments, uh, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, extreme unction, that's the final rites, you know, if somebody looks like they're about to die, um, and then uh, holy orders and matrimony. Because they believed in uh, clerical uh, celibacy, you only could ever get six of the seven. <laughs> it's impossible to get all seven. Um, they, they, won't, they won't permit it, obviously. You can't have a married priest. Uh, so either you're going to get ordinance or you're going to get matrimony, uh, etc. You can't have them both. 
But anyway, they, these, these were not just means of grace, friends. These were means of salvation. See what I'm saying? And this is how you were saved. This is how the church ministered salvation to people. And basically, all you had to do was just stand under these things and you were going to go to heaven after you spent your time in purgatory. All right? So this is how you got to heaven. Are these means of grace, the sacraments. Furthermore, you didn't even have to believe in anything. You just had to do them. All right? So faith was not the issue. It never was. A subjective experience of faith and all that. Who knows what that is? Just need to be here and do the things we tell you to do. And that's how the sacramental system worked, etc. Uh, so those are worthy of merit before God, whether the person has faith or not. And the Catholic Church restricts the administration of these sacraments to priests. So the only ones that were dishing these things out, they were priests. Well, this is different. We're talking about something different. I hope you see the difference in the means of grace uh, to the sacramental system. All right, well, let's talk about some of them. Let's talk about the first and, the, and I think the most significant of them all. Uh, and I'm not saying that just because I'm a preacher and teacher of the word, but I just think it is. The most significant means of grace is the ministry of the word of God. It is the way that God keeps the fire of faith burning in our hearts more, more significantly and directly than any other way. All right, first of all, the word of God gives initial birth into the family of God, right? Isn't that how we came into this? Isn't that how the fire got started in our souls? Wasn't it the word of God that was preached and taught to us that brought us to faith? Certainly it was. Uh, Romans 10:17 says, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. James 1:18, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And then uh, 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. 2 Timothy 3.15, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All right, so there's that emphasis on initial faith, how you first trusted in Christ, how you were first grafted in, how you were first born again. It's through the word of God. But you know, if you look at 2 Timothy 3.15, which I just quoted, I hope you are learning more and more as you listen to me teach and preach and as you get other good influences and good teaching and preaching um, to see that word salvation as a holistic, whole life thing that God does, not just that initial moment of justification, but it's all that God is doing in your life to bring you to perfection in Him, physically and morally, relationally with Him, everything He's doing to, to fight sin and to bring you to heaven. And so therefore the Holy Scriptures continue to be able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's not just for that first moment. It's for now, right now. The, the Scriptures right now are making you wise for salvation, just right now as we're looking at these words, aren't they? And so there's that ongoing ministry of the Word of Scripture to us. So we have the ongoing ministry of the Word. It feeds the faith and nourishes the soul. Now, why would God use something entirely different to nourish and maintain the faith that He started by some other means? He's not going to start it one way and then use something entirely different to nourish it. The very thing that started it is the thing that will nourish it, right? And that is the Word of God. And so you have 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3, like newborn babies crave the pure milk of the Word, long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So you're yearning for the pure spiritual milk, the milk of the Word, like a baby, a newborn baby. Of course, there's different categories of, of, of uh, teaching in the Word. Uh, you've got the milk and then you've got the meat. 
So it's not right to maintain just sipping milk always. If you're going to grow up in your salvation, you're going to develop, as it were, some spiritual molars and incisors to be able to grind some tougher things. Take it into yourself. You know, Hebrews uh, 6 talks about that. You know, by now you ought to be further along than you are. You still need milk after all this time. That's a shameful thing. You should be chewing on meat by now, dealing with the deeper things of God, not just the initial teachings. But it's the same thing. The Word of God has been provided for you to build you up in your faith. The Word of God also has the power to build us up and make us mature. Acts 20.32 says, Now I commit you to God and to the Word of His grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The Word of God can do that. It has the power to build you up and to make you sanctified. Oh, how important this is for me as a teacher of the Word. It really is. I I can't tell you how many fads there are in ministry. All you have to do is get some of these ministerial magazines, and they're going to tell you the latest and greatest thing. And you can buy it for $69.95, you know? They'll market it. They'll even put it on baseball caps and on on keychains and and print it on T-shirts, and that's the latest fad, and that's going to build your church. I've seen probably 15 or 20 major fads go through since I've been here in you know, nine years. It just They just keep on going one after the other, one after the other. And for me, you know, I'm not saying that there's not some valid insights and some things that you can try and all that. And I, I, I wouldn't want to be, you know, pridefully judging or assessing those things in that way. Many of the good ones do desire to minister and teach the word. And I'm not saying they're not. But I think in the end, as a pastor, as a teacher, you just have to put your eggs in this basket. The Word of God is able to build the church. It just is. And so the number one best, most important thing I can do as a pastor is to keep studying and accurately teaching the Word of God. That's the best thing I can do. It's better than going to this or that conference or whatever you know that teaches the new techniques and all that. I'm telling you, it's just the best thing that I could ever do. And conversely, the best thing you could yearn for is the Word of God. You should just yearn for it and say, I just know that if I keep under the word and keep taking it in, I'm going to grow. I just am going to grow. And boy, does the devil try to confuse us on this matter. He really does. He tries to confuse us because God, the growth is slow. Sometimes it seems like it's not happening at all. It's so easy to get discouraged in ministry and get discouraged in the Christian life. You think nothing's going on because the big, splashy, dramatic things aren't happening the way you wish they would. Well, listen, you just have to fly when you're in the fog. You have to fly by what you know, by the by the the instruments you've got that are telling you where the where the ground is and where the sky is and, and where north is and all that. And they're true and they're right. And, you, and even though there seems like a fire, you've got to keep on going. I think it's significant that the end of Jesus' ministry and the end of Paul's ministry, both of them look bankrupt in terms of effectiveness. I mean, Jesus is up on the cross and all of his disciples had deserted him and fled except John and his mother and some other women are there. But that, just that's it. Greatest ministry in history. Best teaching, best miracles, best everything best role modeling, an example, and he's got nobody at his feet because of how he's dying, right? And then there's the Apostle Paul in trial for his life, and they all desert him and flee, and everybody in the province of Asia has deserted me, he says, and, and it just looks like it's coming to nothing. Are there two more effective people in the history of the world than Jesus and the Apostle Paul? I say no, and both of them, they look like nothing at the end of their ministries. You just have to see through to what God is doing. And so for me, I have to say consistently as a pastor and a teacher, Father, into your hands I commit my ministry. And he he basically is saying through this, keep teaching the word. Be faithful in teaching and the church will build and grow and be patient. And so it is with you as well. The word of God has the power 
to build us up and make us mature. Second Timothy 3:16 and 17 says, "All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, complete and perfect in his sight, ready to do everything God wants us to do." It's the Word that does that. And the Word has power to work in our hearts. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You know, it's, it's something. Uh, I had an email this week from a um, godly friend and a church member comes regularly, and uh, he had brought a non-Christian friend on Sunday. You know, how I was preaching from James, uh, John chapter 4 on the Samaritan you know, woman at the well and all that. And uh, this, this woman... Um, uh, said that there were some things going on in her life. Uh, she's not a Christian. Uh, very significant things going on in her life uh, that are not right and need, she will need to repent from and change. Um, and uh, she said that she felt that I was looking at her the entire time I was preaching, <laughs> which I wasn't. I know where that individual sits, and I actually have a deficiency. My wife says I look more to one side than the other. I'm trying to be a little bit more balanced. But I, I, I know I wasn't staring at her the whole time. What was going on? Well, when I was talking about how Jesus very plainly confronted this woman about her sin, she was being confronted. That's what was going on. And as she was being confronted, she felt as though I was making it personal. I didn't even know she was there, and I don't know who she is. I have no idea. All I know is that the Word of God is living and active and powerful, and it gets into our hearts, and it, and it, and it separates things, some things out. It makes it very, very plain and clear. And so, to me, that's the power of the Word of God. And that, that continues. It doesn't just happen, you know, and then you, you become a Christian, and then that stops happening. Actually, that's when it really starts taking off. The Word of God really starts getting powerfully and active in your life and starts changing, and you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind and just going on. So, the Word of God. The growth of the church totally identified with the spread of the Word. It says in Acts 6-7, I think this is interesting the way it's written. So, the Word of God spread... The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Acts 12, 24 again, the word of God continued to increase and spread. I mean, what does that mean? How does the word of God increase? Well, it really doesn't. It's kind of there, it's set, right? So how does the word of God increase? Well, what's happening is people are hearing it. People are being drawn into its power and they're having their lives changed and transformed. That's what it means that the word of God is increasing. So we could say, like, like here at First Baptist Church, the word of God is increasing and spreading. It's not any bigger than it ever was. It's just that we are more open to it. Uh, we are desiring to be more obedient. We're seeing the effects and we're seeing more of the truth of God in various books of the Bible, etc. The word is increasing in that way, teaching ministry. And we should pray for it. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. All right, that's the ministry of the word is the most important of all means of grace. Deuteronomy 32:47 says, they are not just idle words for you, they are your life. This is the word of God. It is your life. And uh, Jesus, of course, said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So important. And uh, 1 Timothy 4, until I come, uh, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Uh, do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You see that? That's powerful. So basically, Timothy, be faithful in doing this preaching and teaching ministry because if you do, you're going to save yourself and your hearers. And notice he includes Timothy. You will save yourself. 
And so there, again, there's that ongoing salvation work. You will continue to be being saved because you need it too. All of us do. So that's the power of the Word of God. The ministry of, of the Word, however, should not be limited just to that done by, let's say, the senior pastor in his sermons. Frankly, it's any which way that the Word of God interacts with our lives through the body of Christ. So all of us have a role to play. If you are getting together with a friend and you're having lunch or breakfast or something and you share what you learned in your quiet time that morning, that's the Word of God flowing and, and strengthening the body of Christ, isn't it? I like this in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. You know, I'm reading through the uh, Bible in a year using that John MacArthur uh, Bible. He's got the, uh, you read through the Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs. And it's just great. It's, uh, it's, it's really wonderful. I, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you. I was saying to, to a good friend, we were talking about it, and said, well, what do you like about it? I said, well, one of the things I like is it gives me permission to stop reading, Okay. Because if you're just reading through the Bible in a year, you don't know if you read enough. But this breaks it up. And if I stay with this, I'll read through the Bible in a year. And so that way, I read about 15 minutes. That's about how long it takes to read that day's thing. And I think, okay. You know, and that keeps me going, you know. Because on top of that, I'm doing other things in my spiritual disciplines and all that. So I know that I've read enough to keep going on pace. Other than that, you feel like, well, I keep reading another chapter or something like that. And then it gets overwhelming and you give up. So that just, it just keeps me going, etc. Anyway, I was reading, I'm reading through the whole account with Jacob and, uh, you know, how he goes from Laban to, uh, to Esau. Boy, he was having it tough. Laban wanted to kill him. Esau wanted to kill him. You know, it's like, you know, either way. But I just get so much out of that, you know. And, and there's just, it's so rich. So if you're just there with a friend and you're just sharing what you learned in your quiet time, that's the ministry of the Word of God. It's just flowing. So it's not just that which the senior pastor is doing or Sunday school teacher, whatever. It's just whenever you're sharing the Word of God with each other. All right. Number one means of grace, the ministry of the Word of God. Any questions about that? Yeah, Tim. I mean, God's Word, I mean, Hebrews 1 3 says He's sustaining all things by the power of God. Okay, so the grace, that, the, the overall grace that I mean, is holding the whole universe together, right? Mm-hmm. Then there's defining grace in the church itself. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, He's set up the whole universe and is upholding it and propping it up. And I believe He's doing that for the benefit of the elect. Because, you know, the, the rest, they're going to hell. That's where they're heading. In the end, they will not come to Christ. God knows who they are. We don't. We just continue to minister. And I, I just don't always hope the person I'm talking to will come to faith in Christ, etc. But why has he kept history going? Why is he propping it up? He is patient with us, not wanting any of us to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so he's setting this thing up. So his grace is still directed toward the church, even if it's just generally holding up the whole universe. And why? Because some of his elect haven't even been born yet. Have not even been born yet. As far as I know, I don't know when the Lord is coming back, but I'm saying if things just keep on going, some of them have yet to be born. You know, you're a grandson or granddaughter, maybe, you know, one of those. And you're hoping that God will keep things propped up until he or she is born, right? And so he has a plan. And it's beautiful. Isn't this beautiful? You know, I'm glad history didn't end before I was born and even better before I came to faith in Christ, you know. And so it's so beautiful how God upholds all things by the word of his power, holds it all up. But then there's that special work going on in this church right now, right in this room. Thank you. That's a good question. All right. Second means of grace I want to mention is this uh, uh, means of baptism. Baptism is a means of grace. Well, first of all, Christ commanded the church to baptize. So we should expect a measure of grace coming to the church for obeying that command, right? If we do what he tells us, he'll bless it, right? And he's told us to baptize. 
All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy the Son and the Holy Spirit. So he has commanded us, and therefore we should expect him to bless it, right? Because this is an act publicly testifying to the believer's faith in Christ, the whole church receives the blessing of God's grace in witnessing it. Don't you? I mean, don't, aren't you encouraged when you hear those te- testimonies, how those people came to faith in Christ? And then to see them get baptized, don't you feel joy? I've had tears in my eyes sometimes. Tears in my eyes to hear how God worked, especially if they have tears. If they're crying a lot, boy, that gets me. You know, When they're crying about how God brought them to faith and, and how grateful they are to be brought to this point, that is a powerful moment. And it brings me back to my baptismal pledge and my baptismal commitment. And, and, it, and to remember what I promised Christ I would do and be. And so baptism is a tremendous means of grace for us. And that's why for myself, I'd like to see it happening more and more in our church. I'd like to see more and more. Of, and, and a lot of that depends on you folks as much as me. You know, For us to be faithful and go out and witness and bring some of those people in. Bring them to Christ. And we get to hear how God used, used you to change somebody forever. I think that's a beautiful thing. It's also a visible reminder of the believer's union with Christ in death and resurrection, a powerful incentive to holy life. That's exactly how Paul argues in Romans 6, 1 through 5, right? He says, you were buried with him through baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. You therefore should walk in newness of life. You have been raised with Christ, so you should be holy. Therefore, the fifth baptismal question I ask is, do you commit yourself to a life of holy obedience to his commands? That's what you're doing, isn't it? You're saying, I will be holy because he is holy. I'm going to walk in obedience to him as Jesus has been raised to a new life. That's me. And so there's that beautiful union with Christ and his holiness It is death and his resurrection. We're new creations. And that's a picture of it. And that union, by the way, is also a a source of great assurance that Christ has made us a pledge there. Not just we have made a pledge to him, but he's made a pledge to us. And he's committed to raise us from the dead. And he will do it. You know, that of all that the Father has given me, I will lose none but raise them up at the last day. And isn't that an assurance to you? Isn't that beautiful, those, those promises in John 6? that I shall lose none of all that he has given, but raise them up at the last day. How assuring is that? And every time I see a baptism, I think about that, that union and that pledge he's made to me, that he's going to raise me up from the dead. Isn't that beautiful? So when you lay on your deathbed, think back to your baptism, think back to the pledge and the promise and what Jesus has said and how he has promised he will most certainly raise you up out of the grave and go into death singing praise like Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. Don't die like you have no faith. <laughs> you know, I just feel like we need to prepare. You all look healthy. You're looking good. Now's the time, okay, for me to remind you to die well, okay? All right? Because <laughs> it may be years for some of you. It may not. But if you have the opportunity to die well, sometimes you just die and the Lord takes you, all right? But sometimes it's a lingering process and you see it coming. I'm just saying die with faith and confidence that God will raise you from the dead. We should all have that kind of confidence. Uh, it's also an outward uh, symbol of the Spirit's presence in us and then is uh, closely linked with the Spirit's work. Wasn't the Spirit present at Jesus' baptism? Didn't he come down like a dove? And uh, didn't John the Baptist say, I baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire? And so Jesus baptizes with the Spirit. And so baptism, I think, is a picture of the Spirit's work in us. We were baptized by the Spirit into one body, it says in 1 Corinthians 10. And so I just see a very strong link between water baptism and spirit baptism. I believe the spirit baptism comes first. I I just do. I think that we were baptized by faith into Christ, and then the water baptism is an outward and visible symbol of that. It's a picture of it. That's something that's already happened. And of the two, which is more significant? Being baptized by the spirit 
or baptized by water? Which of the two is more significant? Thank you. That was an easy question. I wanted to be sure you knew it because I know I'm tricky sometimes, but that was an easy one. Even John knew that. John said it very plainly. He says, the one after me is greater than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. I baptize with water, but he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. See, that's clearly Jesus' baptism more significant. But that doesn't mean that water baptism is insignificant. I'm not saying that. And so it's very clearly linked to our salvation. Uh, when on Pentecost they heard uh, Peter preach, he said, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter answered, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See that link between that water baptism and the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right? Benefits of the baptism are completely linked with faith. Baptism has no value apart from the faith of the participants. All right? Uh, specifically the participant, <laughs> okay? That eliminates infant baptism. I, I, we're, we're not paedo-baptists. We do not believe in infant baptism. We don't believe in having godparents hold the child and all that kind of thing. We believe that faith should be exercised before water baptism is administered, okay? Okay, the third means of grace I want to mention tonight is the Lord's Supper. And this is a very important topic for me, okay? Because I believe I've noticed, especially in Baptist churches, a minimizing of the importance of the Lord's Supper. I, I, I just feel like we downplay it. I think we act like it's not that important. And, and you see that in some of these larger churches, the mega churches that have like the Lord's Supper on Sunday evening service, one third or, or less of the congregation is there. And the reasons are pragmatic. You know, it's hard to get the elements out there. You know, there are companies that make prepackaged Lord's Supper wafers and cups like that. They're all set and the, the, the janitors can put them out on Saturday night and they're all right there and you can open up and everybody get their little thing and, you know, you get them. I've tasted them. They taste terrible. I mean, I don't know that there's much difference between the taste of the packing material and the thing itself, but uh, they're there and it's a little bitty thing and you just eat it and then the, the juice, you drink it and that's it. And, you know, and, and, but at least they're trying, you could say. At least they're trying. At least they're going to have it you know, the Lord's Supper, but, you know, if you're going to a church with 15,000 people and they have it once a quarter on Saturday, Sunday night and all that, that's the minimization I'm talking about. And you know why? Because I think we've kind of imbibed Zwingli's attitude that it's just a memorial after all. We're not Catholics. We don't believe in the real presence. We don't believe that it's actually the body and blood of Christ and therefore it really isn't that important. Well, where in the world do we get that idea that it really isn't that important? I, I've embraced John Calvin's view of the Lord's Supper which uh, Luther said he would have accepted if he had known you know, more about it at the time, and that was that uh, he did not accept real presence. He didn't believe it actually became the body and blood of Jesus, but that Jesus, through his pledge, has promised to effuse the event with the power of the Holy Spirit. He's promised to do it. And so, therefore, there is a very incredibly significant thing that goes on with the Lord's Supper. It's still bread. It's still juice or wine. That's what it is. It hasn't changed any, but the Lord is there. You know, it's, it's the significance of that statement. We believe in an omnipresent God, but where two or three are gathered my name, there am I in their midst. So there's a sense of an intensification of the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. I think we should come to the Lord's Supper with that expectancy. And if you do, I think that there's a sense that you will feel it. I do. That you will sense the Spirit is, of God is in this place. And this is a very significant thing. And if you start reading what Paul writes about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, you start to realize how seriously he takes it. Is not the Lord's Supper a participation in the body and the blood of Christ, it says? There's, that has caused many 
people to stumble and they i think they end up saying well it must actually be the body and blood of christ then because we're participating in it we don't need it to be the actual body and blood we don't need transubstantiation what we need is a sense that the holy spirit has linked us through the lord's supper into the very presence of god in a very powerful way and so therefore there's even a death penalty connected uh, in some cases if you eat in a manner unworthy some of the corinthians had fallen asleep they may not even have known it, but then the Apostle Paul said, that's why they died. And what a sobering thing that is, that if you eat in a manner worthy, you're sinning against the body and blood of Christ. That's a very serious thing. Yes. When I take the Lord's Supper, it's a time of reflection and confession because we're told to confess beforehand. But how could I practice it more rightly in a way that, as you're describing, like focusing on how this is bringing together like his body, or I'm partaking, or I'm drawing close to Christ by this act, and not just make it a, let me confess my sins before I take it type event. Well, I think, you know, you've already gotten into one very important thing, um, and that is confession of sin or reflection of your life. Um, I think the thing is that the Lord's Supper causes us to look with eyes of faith at things, all right? For example, it causes us to look back to the death of Christ. We proclaim his death, right? So you, you look back at Jesus' death. He died. He gave his flesh for the life of the world. So there's a sacrifice there in his blood. So we're looking back to the death of Christ. It also causes us to look around at the body of Christ because there's one loaf and there's a unity here. And not just in this room, but all around the world, we are part of one body. And, and you think about that in the sense of, I am a participant now by the power of the Spirit in a worldwide body of Christ. That's powerful. That's an incredible thing. And, and you're there in a room with people and you're all doing the same thing. So, so you're looking around. There's also a sense of, of, of looking ahead. We proclaim his death until he comes. So we're looking ahead to the coming kingdom. And he said, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. So there's a sense of thankfulness and, and joy at a coming kingdom. And so we look ahead. It all is in what you're thinking about by the power of the Spirit. And then you talked about the looking inward. You're looking inward. So there's all those looks going on. You say, how do I do all of that? Well, we usually go take our time. You know, there's time to think about various themes. We don't try to run through it as quickly as possible. You know, get, get the efficiency down. Well, that was three minutes and 16 seconds. It was good, but it could be better. Let's do it again. You know, I mean, we're not, we're not shooting for as short as we can. There's enough time to, to pray and to think. I think you also should look for the dates in the, in the beacon or the bulletin. Next week's the Lord's Supper. Prepare yourself on Saturday night. Say, Lord, tomorrow it's going to be the Lord's Supper. Get me ready. Prepare me. Take it seriously and see what the Lord does. Okay, we're out of time. We'll talk more next time, God willing, about um, praying for each other and then other uh, means of uh, grace. Let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you for this time tonight that we've had to study the Word and the means of grace, and I just pray that we would stand under these means of grace and allow them to flood grace into our soul, the ministry of the Word of God, the ministry of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and then these others besides that we haven't talked about yet tonight. And I just pray that you would make us strong in grace and make us mature and able to, to face the challenges and tests that we have to face. Um, Lord, bring us safely into your heavenly kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians 
make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.